Okay, I'm going to start with something. I, first of all, I need to tell you this, um, and I think it's just so fitting that then my slideshow didn't start out well, but this has been the most daunting task for me to preach to you out of Revelation and to try to summarize some of these things for Revelation for you. And I've spent hours this week, hours and hours and hours, and it has been overwhelming. I was telling my wife, oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever prepared so much and felt so underprepared. So I was asking the Lord, it was more whining to the Lord. How many of you have, I think we should come up with a word for when you're praying and whining at the same time. It's probably, is it, is it whining? Is it wearing? I don't know what it is, but I was doing it. And I just said, Lord, what is going on here? Is it spiritual attack? What is it? And he said, oh, that's easy. You're trying to give a definitive answer to something that has been a mystery for 2,000 years. <laughs> and I thought, man, that is, I'm feeling better already. So, uh, so here's, what I, here's what I would like to do today. I'm not going to try to give you a definitive answer for Revelation because Revelation is a, it has mystery in it, it has history in it, it is an incredible book, but it is, it is written in, a, in an, ap, an a, uh, apocalyptic language, and, um, and so we don't, how many of you guys write in apocalyptic language? Yeah, exactly. Oh, thank you. Yeah, a couple of you. Fantastic. Good for you. You're reviving something, a uh, language in a style that has been pretty much considered a dead language since the second century. But um, at any rate, so um, we're going to dive into this. But I want to start with this. So much of what we believe when we read Revelation, oftentimes when you talk to someone, is not so much what you've read, but your belief system is oftentimes connected to what you've heard other people teach on the subject. It's connected oftentimes to culture. It's connected oftentimes to, to uh, the latest teaching on it or maybe your favorite teacher. And many of us hold views that when we look at Revelation, we're already coming with a presupposition of what this is supposed to mean. Are you guys with me? And, it, and, 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 the, and the other thing is, because it is in the Bible for us, there's a, there's a tendency, and it's easy for us to kind of lock up a little bit and be like, hey, that's the Word of God, and I know the Word of God, and don't, mess with, don't you be messing with my end times and the Word of God and how this works. And so there's a lot of pressure when we approach Revelation. Are you guys tracking with me? Who here knows what I'm talking about? And then when you talk to other people, it almost immediately, uh, depending on how into this subject they are, it can almost immediately end up sort of an argument of your favorite teachers versus their favorite teachers. Come on. Nobody here likes to argue. Praise God. That's why we all get along so well. And so, what, what, but what we end up with when we, really, when we really take a look at it is that oftentimes our belief system is based more in our cultural setting and the teachers that we've learned from. Now, I'm not saying that teachers aren't important. In fact, they're very important. But what I would like for us to do is to examine, um, what I'm, I'm actually going to say is that we would examine the way that we examine Revelation. How's that sound? And so what I'm really going to do today is I'm not going to teach on Revelation very much. I am going to reference a couple of the passages, and I am going to talk a little bit about what we can know, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how I feel like it would be important for us to approach Revelation, and I'm going to talk a little bit about history of where we are as a culture and then some of the church fathers and how they approached it. And I'm going to do that all before noon. But I want, to start, I want to start with this. I want to start with this. I'm just going to read this to you. Things are getting better. The futurist view, which means everything is going to happen in the future, 
is deeply intertwined with the belief that this world is getting worse and worse, while at the same time balancing on the brink of destruction. Jack Van Impey, one of the most popular futurist teachers, warns, all hell will break loose on planet Earth, a furious time of pain, mayhem, and agony for millions. And the signs of global economic chaos are on the horizon. Hal Lindsey starts off his tremendously popular book, The Late Great Planet Earth, by telling the reader about the world in a mess. John Hagee, one of the strongest radio and television personalities promoting the futurist view, writes that the world is standing on the brink of nuclear Armageddon and teetering on the brink of World War III. Such phrases and ideas permeate futurist teachings because their view is fully interdependent with the belief that things are getting worse and the world is about to self-destruct. Therefore, it is difficult to let go of the futurist view without also releasing the pessimistic view, pessimistic view of the world in the future. Indeed, if we focus on what the television news brings into the living rooms of our homes each day, things can look pretty dismal. Come on. There are terrible events going on in the world, and evil is very evident. However, let's lift ourselves higher and take a broader look over history. Let's compare our world today with what the world was like in the past. Let's start by taking a snapshot of what life was like in the United States just 200 years ago. In the early 1800s, there were about 5 million immigrants in the United States, but 20% of them were slaves. That alone reveals a great evil, but consider what else was happening. The age of sexual consent in many states was 9 or 10 years old. Abortion was legal throughout the most of the 19th century, and records tell us that more than one-fifth of all pregnancies were aborted, with Michigan having the highest rate at 34%. Alcoholism was much higher than it is today. Prostitution was also higher, with New York City having approximately one prostitute for every 64 men. The mayor of Savannah estimated that his city had one for every 39. The percentage of Americans going to church was about equal to what it is today, about 30 to 45 percent. Thousands of people were moving west, and most of them had no churches to attend until years after they had settled and communities had been developed. Native Americans were being forced off their lands and in some cases murdered. Thousands of Chinese people were being brought into the west coast of, of the United States to serve as forced laborers. When gold was discovered in various regions of the west, gold rushes occurred, which produced some of the most vile and dangerous communities in the world. Many people in the west carried guns for protection because murder was commonplace. Throughout the United States, women could not vote, and men could legally beat their wives as long as they didn't maim or kill them. Things in the United States were not better morally, ethically, or spiritually. Of course, there were some godly individuals laying the foundations of the United States government, but the moral and ethical climate of America was much worse than it is today. The good old days were not so good. Let's go back further in time, take a snapshot of the whole world around the time Jesus came as a baby. The Roman Empire dominated civilization centered around Europe, the Middle East, and Northern Africa. In Italy, approximately 40% of the population consisted of slaves. 40%. Throughout the empire, homosexuality was commonplace, especially between a master and slave. Most of the Roman and Greek people worshipped many gods, such as Jupiter, Juno, and Neptune. Outside of the Roman Empire, people in Africa, Asia, and Australia worshipped nature, demons, and their own dead ancestors. In North America, people had no revelation of the Messiah. In South America, millions worshipped a bloodthirsty God, and they offered human sacrifices, often numbering in the thousands in one ceremony. To, I'm sorry, in a single ceremony. 
When Jesus came to the earth, there was only one tiny nation located in the Middle East that had a revelation of one true God. Think about that for a minute. When Jesus came, there was one tiny nation. In fact, God refers often to Israel as the smallest of all the nations that he picked, and they were the only ones that had a revelation of God yet. And even its citizens were living in a time of great doubt. All the rest of the world was lost in darkness. As the Apostle Paul wrote, formerly, you Gentiles were at the time separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. I want you to think about this. The entire world had no hope and was without God. What does that look like? Have you guys ever seen Israel on a map? It's about the size of Oregon. So in that place with Israel, those people knew about the Messiah. The only revelation of God in the entire earth. All of the rest of the earth laid in the hands of Satan. That was the condition of the world 2,000 years ago. As Ernest Hampton Cook wrote, the fact is that bad as the world still is, yet morally it is vastly better than it was when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Few people in these days have an adequate conception of the misery and degradation with which were then the common lot of almost all mankind, owing to the monstrous wickedness of the times, to continual war, to the cruelties of political despotism, and of everywhere prevailing slavery. Now, think how blessed the world is today. The gospel is being preached in every corner of the earth. Christianity is exploding in growth across the world with more than 200,000 people becoming born-again Christians every day. In China, there are more than 20,000 per day becoming Christians. And in South America, there are 35,000 per day. All totaled, there are more than a million people per week becoming Christians. The tiny seed that came into the earth in that little nation of Israel has grown to, to permeate the earth with more than 2 billion people claiming to be Christians today. Christianity is the largest, most influential block of humanity in the world. Are things getting better? Are things getting better? You guys are a little confused. You're like, I don't know. Uh, are things getting better? Well, how many of you ladies voted in the last election? Are things getting better? How many people have uh, allowed their child to marry somebody while they were 9 or 10 years old? Are things getting better? This is great news. I'll just preach to myself. Things are getting good, Joshua. I'm excited right now. I'm encouraged. Now listen, we have a long way to go before we can say that everything is wonderful. But... Things are much better in the world today than they were when Jesus came into the world 2,000 years ago. Can you agree with that? Yes. All right. The optimistic view can be difficult to accept for Christians who have been submerged in the pessimistic worldview. Indeed, there are many Christian preachers who regularly rally the troops and motivate people to action by emphasizing the dire conditions of the world around us. Of course, Christians must stay vigilant. We have much work ahead of us, but we must not lose sight of the fact that we're gaining ground. Jesus Christ is Lord, and the kingdom of God is advancing. 
Isn't that good news? He is Lord, and the kingdom of heaven is advancing. Now, here's what's so important about, about us grabbing a hold of that worldview. You see, we really have... Okay, I'm going to jump in before I try to summarize. How about that? How about I summarize at the end instead of the beginning? What is it called when you summarize in the beginning? Don't answer that. Okay, let's talk about this. John wrote the book of Revelation while exiled on the island of Patmos. Most evidence points to John writing it between 91 and 96 AD. Okay, so in order for one to properly understand any book in the Bible, it's important we recognize that first and foremost, that each book is written to a specific people. Would you say that specific people? Okay, do you, you see what I'm saying? Each one of these books, there's 66 books in the Bible. The Bible is not one book. It's 66 different books and letters that have been compiled that we now can look so that we can see both the history of what God has done with man, the prophetic words about Jesus Christ coming, and then prophetic words about the end of the age, as well as these pertinent letters to the church, the universal church, right? From, from beginning until it gets to an end, they're still pertinent to us. But it's really important that we understand that it was written to a specific people at a specific time, right? If we don't acknowledge that, what we can end up doing is coming to all these strange con, uh, conclusions because we're like, that's, a, that's the word of God for me today. Now, the, the Bible does have the prophetic ability. The spirit of God can quicken your heart and he can take the scripture, say it with me, out of context and, and quicken it to your heart. And we've seen the apostles do that, where they would take a scripture out of context. I can't think of one at the moment, but they would take it out of context and say, hey, this is the word of the Lord for right this moment. And they knew they were taking it out of context. You understand what I'm saying? So, so God does that with us. How many of you had the Lord like quicken a scripture to you right in that moment? And it totally, he brought it to, to, to mind and you were like, that's the word of the Lord. And you went and did something because he brought that scripture to your mind. I would hope everybody, but praise God. Right, so you know what I'm talking about. But you got to understand when that happens, you're taking it out of context. Because that, that word wasn't written first to you. It was written first to a specific people. I think you guys are with me. Okay, so first of all, it is written to a specific people at a specific time in a language they understand. If we break from this, we're taking liberties and we're in danger of jumping into all kinds of ideas that may have nothing to do with what the author intended as we're imagining meanings and inventing connections that are outside of the context of the book or the letter and the message to a specific people. The second thing we must keep in mind is that the apostles were in harmony in the books and letters that they wrote to the church. So we can't espouse an explanation or a meaning that isn't consistent with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. You guys get me here? So it wasn't like Paul was preaching one Christ, but John was preaching another one. You know, it wasn't, James didn't write one letter and go, hey, you know, Paul's a goofball. Don't even worry about what he's talking about. Here's the real gospel and how it works. There's a harmony in the gospels and the letters. And so what you have to do, you can't just take one specific scripture and decide like, well, this scripture now determines direction and understanding for the rest of the scriptures. You see what I'm saying? You have to take into context the fact that the authors of these letters and books, they're not in, they're not in conflict with each other. One of them doesn't cancel the other one out. So therefore, if you have a scripture and you're applying it in such a way that it, that it contradicts the words of Jesus or the clear teachings of the apostles, then you're going a bad direction. Does that make sense? 
So this is important that when we read the word, this is why so often it's like, hey, when you read the word, remember, the word is, it's a history. It's a prophetic word that Christ would come. It's fulfilled in the coming of the Christ, and it shows the historical reality that that happened. And then it's the writing of the apostles who were with Christ, and they're sharing the words that he taught, the doctrines that he taught. And then under the unction of the Holy Spirit, they're instructing the church on how it will move forward. The whole thing is working together. And then John is coming now with revelation, and he's having a vision. He's on the island of Patmos. He has a vision, and he writes a letter. And he writes that letter to a specific people at a specific time for a specific reason. Are you guys tracking? All right. Now, the style that he wrote it in is probably one of the hardest things that we have to contend with at this time because as I said people just don't write in apocalyptic language anymore it's just it's just not in vogue and it has some certain rules to it which I'm not even going to pretend to fully understand because I don't because as I say that language is not commonplace but I want to talk to you a little bit about the apocalyptic style of writing first of all it's historically identified as we just talked about it's written to a particular people at a particular time it's talking about times and seasons Second, apocalyptic writing is dualistic. It means good versus evil. It means heaven versus darkness. It's also eschatological, and I'm going to talk to you about that, but that simply means it's about the last days. It's about the end of the age. It's deterministic. It means the conflict and its effects are inevitable. These things are going to happen, or these things have already happened when it's written. It's saying these things, they're going to happen. Apocalyptic writing has a secondary characteristics as well. Symbols, visions, and images play important parts as means of communication. Apocalyptic writing is a style of communication ceased about the 2nd century AD. I want to talk to you a little bit about the backdrop of what was going on when John wrote this. How many of you? Yeah, let me just jump in here. So this is Nero, good-looking fella. Uh, no, <laughs> not at all. Horrible person. Okay, um, he began the attack on Jerusalem, uh, and then in the midst of political intrigue, he, he ended up killing himself. He was a lunatic, um, and, but he is the one who actually began the attack on Jerusalem. During that time, the, the Jews had an uprising against Rome. He's the emperor of Rome, and he attacked Jerusalem, but in the middle of it, he ended up committing suicide. Um, coincidentally, it is interesting when, when, when his name is transliterated into Hebrew, then his, the numeric value, how many of you guys know that Hebrew has both an, an alphabetic and numeric value? Do you guys know this? And so when you take and you add up the numeric value of Nero's name, it equals 666. And, and uh, so for, for those of you that have read Revelation, uh, the mark of the beast, remember it talks about it and it says, and let the reader understand is 666. Just an interesting coincidence, since we know that John was writing to a specific people at a specific time with a desired understanding that they would, I mean, a desired, <laughs> with a desire to communicate, and they would have understanding of what he was communicating about. When people wrote in an in a apocalyptic language, that style was to be understood by the reader. Are you guys with me? You're so quiet today. I do commend you for coming at like, are we, aren't we making some history right now on how cold it's been in the last like 50 years or something? What is today? Because yesterday was the coldest since 1974. Does anybody figure out today? Did anybody Googleize it? 
It's definitely a colder day. I'm just wondering if we broke another record. I want to know if there's some historical breakthrough. Since 72? Well, we only got two more years. But that's a good job. Did you Googleize that? Let me go to the next emperor. So this is the backdrop of while, of while John is still alive. So Jerusalem is being attacked by Nero. In, uh, in, uh, he act, it actually gets attacked in 60, I believe it was 68. And then Nero takes his life. So then Ves, uh, Vespasian, Vespasian uh, he begins at um, 69. And he ends up destroying Jerusalem. He sends in Titus. And, and they, they destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they fulfill the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 34. The disciples had come to Jesus and they said, they asked him three questions. Jesus, they were showing him the temple. And they, and they asked him three questions. They said, Jesus, when will these things happen? When will be the end of the age? And what will be the sign of your coming? Because Jesus was looking at, they were shown in the temple and all the different beautiful stones. And Jesus said to them, what? He said, not one stone will remain upon the other. And then they said, and he said this, so this will all be destroyed. And they said, when will it be destroyed? When will be the end of the age? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus, in that, in that time, he said to them, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. But they asked more than one question. So I want to I challenge you to go in and read that again because oftentimes many Bible teachers have taught that as though, he was, as, as though that was all one question and Jesus was answering one question and lumping it all together. But if you go back and read and look at it, they actually asked him three questions and he answered the three questions. Now that right there clears a whole lot up. I, 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 again, I want to say this. I am not even pretending to try to give you a comprehensive answer to things that have stumped men greater than myself and women greater than myself who have spent countless hours studying the mysteries of how these things all work together. So I'm not, on the grand scheme of this, I, I'm not trying to do that. But I would say on its face, some of these things that we can look at, I do want to bring context and I want to quote fathers of the faith and what they believed because a lot of the beliefs that are, are common to us right now have only been around for about the last 60 years. So, back to the, the backdrop here. So, so this man here, Vespasian comes in. He destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. The, oh my goodness. Um, most of this, this is a quote from, uh, from uh, Josephus during the time of, of the temple. And this was at the final siege. So they had, they, they laid siege to the city. It was so bad during the siege of Jerusalem uh, what, what happened was, first of all, Jesus, remember he said, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing in the place they should not. He was referring to Jerusalem. He said, when you see that, don't go up to the, don't come down from the roof and get your possessions. Don't try to get anything. Get out of Judea. And he says the words Judea. He says, flee from Judea. Woe to those who are in Judea, which is Jerusalem. He says, flee. Do not stay. Don't try to come back for anything. Just get out. All of those that were following Christ, when Vespasian, I'm sorry, when um, Nero sent the armies in before Vespasian came in, those that knew this prophecy fled. And that's a, that's a historical fact. They knew that it was coming, and so they all fled. All of those that stayed, and the highest estimate is three million Jews that stayed in Jerusalem, of those, over a million of them were killed in a four-month period. It was 
uh, by the time it finally was completely under siege and no one could escape. It was so bad that the people, they would come in and they were starving to death. So uh, oftentimes some of the Jews would sneak out under the wall to try to go get some food or some or some herbs or something, dig for roots, whatnot, because they're starving. The Roman soldiers would cut their hands off and send them back in. Um, the, uh, there were mobs that were going on inside of, of, of uh, Jerusalem. They're walking around looking for food. They would break into the house, and it was, it was, it was so crazy at that point. They would, they would threaten you. If you looked healthy enough as though you may be having food, they would torture you until you gave up the food. And then and they would steal your food, kill you anyway, and take the food. It got so bad at one point that a woman, um, she, she actually, it, this, and this started a whole epidemic of this, but she took her baby, she killed the baby, roasted half of it, and hid the other half. When the mob broke in, they could smell that there had been food cooked, so they finally, she uncovered the baby, and she said, well, I've already eaten half of this baby, but I saved the other half for you. And uh, knowing that they were going to kill her anyways, it, it so shocked and horrified them that they actually left trembling. But then after that point, many of the different, uh, of the different mothers killed and ate their babies. Jesus talked about that at this time, he said, there will be such, there will be such um, torture and there will be, it will be horrible. And he says, it will be as has never been and will never be again. Now, oftentimes, end-time teachers, they, they talk about World War I and World War II and, and the Holocaust and all these things, and the Holocaust was horrible. I mean, you guys have seen pictures, you know, they, where, where they, you know, sent them into the showers and, and gassed the Jews, etc. But, but I must say that in, in comparison, when you, when you do look at this, uh, I haven't ever heard of any stories where in the Holocaust that people ate their young. I, the, one of the things that during that time, the, the, uh, the Jews trying to escape from Jerusalem, oftentimes they would, they would swallow um, gold and diamonds and what have you to get out. And uh, the Roman soldiers found out about that. So when they would find them, and, and during the time as they would siege, if they caught anybody sneaking out, then they would cut them open and search through their entrails to see if they could find the jewels and the gold. The, there was no, there was no, there was no uh, water. There was famine. They were, they were literally, it was, it was a horrible thing. In that time in comparison, as far as, as far as the actual percentage of the, of the Jews that died of that nation, it was a much higher percentage, and I, I'm not trying to make light of the Holocaust. I mean, obviously, that's not my point. But my point is, is that this group of people, these, these poor men and women, experienced things and, and did things that were absolutely unheard of from that point. But Jesus and the prophets had spoken to this day. Now, what's interesting about this whole time is that Jesus said, this generation will not end until these things come to pass. And when this all happened was in 70 AD. And a generation in the Bible is measured in 40 years. And it was literally 40 years. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And all these things came upon those that did not escape out of Judea. It's just, it's just, this is just the reality of history. All of the early church fathers believed this to absolutely be the fulfillment and the culmination of what Jesus spoke about in Matthew. They understood that this was the judgment that had come. It's interesting to note as well that in the prophetic word when we, where you read in, in Revelation, and, and this is, this is uh, just an interesting... Actually, you know what? I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go into this right now because it'll take me into another bunny trail. So let's get back to this. So are you, are you guys hearing me? And I want to read you a quote from Josephus. 
Most of the slain were peaceful citizens. This is once they finally came in, they broke in. The people were literally lined up dead in open holes everywhere. There was blood everywhere. You had to wade through blood. Uh, the, the, the dead were, were, it was putrid. They talk about uh, Eusebius and Josephus, they both talk about just the carnage that was going on in Jerusalem. It was just, it was horrifying. Now they come in, they break into the temple. Uh, at this point, they weren't actually supposed to uh, Caesar had actually told them not to destroy the temple, which is an interesting part of history. Uh, but as the mob came in, something sort of took over them, and they ended up setting it on fire. And even though the commanders were screaming at the soldiers not to, it was a frenzy. I mean, it's just a, a wild part of history. And, and of course, I think with this, we have, to, we have to look at that this was a judgment against Jerusalem who had rejected Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in Revelation, it talks about the period of three and a half years, and then it talks about uh, another period of three and a half years. One thing that's interesting is that Jesus' ministry was about three and a half years, and he literally went to Jerusalem and said, repent, 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 and then he said, woe to you, your house will be left to you desolate again and again and again, and afterwards they crucified him. And then after Jesus was raised from the dead, the apostles were in Jerusalem preaching the gospel, and many were saved, but those who rejected them after that time were then destroyed within a generation. It's just an interesting point, isn't it? And again, I, I, I want to encourage everyone to get curious and go into your Bible and compare these things. I want you to go in and read these things for yourselves. I, I, I'm, I'm sitting here telling you that many of the things that we believe about the end times we've found from popular teachers or books like Left Behind and movies that we've seen that literally just kind of, I know for me, I was like, that's really depressing. Um, but, but they find their way into your psyche. You hear things like, well, signs of the times. But it's interesting because Jesus in Matthew 24, he says this, when the end of the age comes, he was answering that question, he says, I don't even know when that happens nor do the angels, only the Father. And he says, but I'll tell you this, it will be just like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and given in marriage, and suddenly the end will come. Now that's an interesting clue for us to be thinking about the end of the age, that we keep looking for signs to tell us it's the end of the age, when Jesus said there will be no sign of the end of the age. It will be just like Noah. And then think about all the books that are written and all the pop culture stuff that we'd like, well, this means this, and then the, oh, and then the goat that jumped over the, the turtle, and then, you know, oh, and then Obama was driving a Chevy, and it's so obvious, you know, and so it's, it's just, you got to think about this. It's almost, I, th I, I think God has a good sense of humor, so I think he's kind of laughing like, you've got to be kidding me, but because he was so clear, he said, no one knows. I don't even know, and there won't be a sign that tells you it's the end of the age. He said there would be a sign when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, and the ones that followed it were not killed. Go check it out, Matthew 24, you're going to love it. Okay, I'm going to read you this quote, and then I've got other things to move on. Fifteen minutes is all I have left. Are you guys having fun so far? Yeah. I know this is gory, but isn't this interesting? Yeah. All right, so here's the quote. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher above the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. At this time, the Jews were killed in every surrounding city. They were captured and given to the Colosseum, given as slaves and utterly despised. All of this happened within 40 years of Jesus answering the disciples' question of when does this all come to pass. 
And that was Josephus. So then I'm going to go to here. Uh, somebody want to tell me how to pronounce this name? Domitian? Domitian. Domitian. That does sound rather good in Greek name right there. Domitian required that the people call him Dominus et Deus. Et Deus, Deus, Master and God. Now this is the first time that any emperor of Rome had required that the people call him Master and God. Okay, so I'm just giving you a backdrop of all the things that are going on. So you've got to realize Rome, or, uh, Rome has destroyed Jerusalem. The, 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 this generation has seen the destruction of both Jerusalem and the temple. John and, the, and the, uh, many of the apostles have already been martyred. John, I'm sorry, John hasn't been martyred, obviously. He's going to write Revelation. What I'm trying to say is John is alive during this time. Many of the apostles now have already been martyred. And so now at this time, Domitian... Is, is requiring that everyone calls him master and God, and those who were not, uh, would not, or persecuted or killed. So I'm just giving you this overview of, of, the, of what's happening in history when John gets his vision and writes a letter to who? A specific people, when? At a specific time, and he expected them to understand it. Okay, so this is what's happening. So now we're going to start. This is John, Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, revelation, by the way, comes from the word apocalypse, which means unveiling. So it's the unveiling, which I think is just a great word because, you know, we hear apocalypse and it's usually connected more to sort of the, you know, left behind stuff and beasts and such like and really bad news. I like revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That feels good. Maybe that's my own personal thought. I'm going to get back to the word. Which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. So he's writing to a specific people at a specific time, with a specific message, and he keeps saying things like, the time is near. So he's talking to these people right now. And he says, John, to who? The seven churches. Okay, so Revelation is written to the seven churches. You guys with me so far? I know this is pretty hardcore. Which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now this is interesting because he's saying a whole lot of things that we have a tendency, I believe, based on the way that we've read things and taking things in some interesting contexts. But he just established a whole bunch of things. Number one, it's to him who loved us, past tense, washed us, past tense, from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests. When? Has means already. He has made us kings and priests. So we are kings and priests. When? Okay. To his God and Father, to him be glory forever, glory and dominion forever and ever. So he's saying he already has glory and dominion. And before he, uh, he says, 
that he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. So he's already the ruler over everything. He's already taken dominion. You guys with me? Behold, he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even though even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, again, I'm not going to try to pretend to understand how all of these things fit in the great picture. But what I do desire is to cause us to, as we look at Revelation, to be able to see that perhaps some of these things have already happened and some of these things have yet to happen. And I really believe as you read this and you take a look at this, that that's a very reasonable approach to say some of these things have already happened. Jesus has already washed us with his blood, so that's already happened, right? Jesus has taken dominion over the earth. And we go, well, wait a minute, I don't know about that yet, because did we see that fully happen? But here he's saying he did take dominion over the earth. So we have, to, we have to go back and begin to examine, what does it actually say? What is the scripture saying? Because oftentimes what we've done, have you guys ever heard that oftentimes our desire to comfort somebody in the midst of, and bring an answer in the midst of something that we don't have a clear answer is the birthplace of some really bad theology? You ever comforted somebody short term and then come back and went, oh, <laughs> I think I just gave God a really black eye on that one. Anybody going to admit to that? Come on, I've so done that. I just wanted me and my buddy back there to be on the same page. <laughs> I, John, both your brother and companion. Now, this is interesting right here. I just want to point this out. I, John, both your brother and companion. What's this next word say? This is interesting. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that John is putting himself in the tribulation. He's not saying later there will be. He's saying, I, John, in the tribulation. I'm just pointing that out. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a, two -edged, a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I think that right there is probably the first thing. If you leave with anything, leave with that right there. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. As you read Revelation, do not be afraid. The guy that wrote Revelation was very afraid. <laughs> and then Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
So this is interesting too. He's not saying I will have or that I will later. He's saying I already have the keys of Hades and death. So again, just an interesting timing thing. Write the things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, I just wanted to point out a couple of things just in that first part of scripture as you guys continue to read through. But I want you to, rem to remember that as you're reading apocalyptic writing, there's use of visions, symbols, numbers, etc. So there's some great books out there to help to uh, give you a historical understanding of what those letters mean. Like 666 is, the, is like sort of the ultimate personification of the number of man. So the mark of the beast is, it's, it's, is 666. And so then you have like 144,000, which is what... Uh, is it 12 squared times 1,000? So it's like the, the, the fullness of that number. So there's several different things that you look at of what these mean that when you look at it as outset with a Western mind, we just look at that and go, wait, are you saying only 144,000 people are gonna make it? Like, that's a very small number, God. There's six billion on the earth just right now. I mean, I'm thinking I didn't make the cut. I was, I'm not even gonna make this joke. It's not even a joke, it's actually true. But I'm, now I have to tell you. Anyway, I was just looking at the whole Jehovah Witness thing, and they have 144,000. But if you doubt that you are one of the 44,000, you're out. I just didn't like the odds, so I, I'm here. <laughs> okay, I want to talk to you about some different terms here, and I'm going to have to start talking really fast. And I'm not going to lie to you, we're going five minutes late today, okay? Because I cannot wrap this up in five minutes. All right. Eschatology. Okay, it's the part of theology concerned with time, death, judgment, final destiny, and the events of the soul of humankind. Okay, so eschatology simply means it's eschatos, which is Greek for last in ology. It's the study of the last times. Eschatology, that's where we get that word. Preterist is from the Latin word. <laughs> I really hate it when I have to say these things. Praetoritis, that which has passed. Okay. Um, eschatological views, eschatological views, interpreting portions of the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, and other prophecies as past events in the literal, physical, and local context, meaning everything has been accomplished already. So there are those who hold a, a strong preterist eschatology. It just means that they believe that when you're looking at prophetic words in the Bible, they've all happened by and large. I'm having to use some generalizations here, by the way, too, so if you're very scholarly and you read a bunch about this, I am not trying to put everybody into a tiny little pigeonhole, but for the sake of conversation and the sake of communication, I have to generalize a little bit, okay? So there's different sort of on a graph, you would have sort of this mostly preterist, totally preterist, kind of preterist, etc. okay? So I'm just, I'm just giving you big terms here. So everything has been accomplished already. So if you were hardcore preterist, bam, they're, they're, that's where you're going to land. The futurist is the eschatological view, eschatological view that interprets portions of the book of Revelation, etc. as future events. So everything is in the future. When you're, when you're reading all these things in Revelation, when you're looking at what happened in Matthew 24, when you're looking at, at uh, some of the things in Daniel, everything is in the future. So those that do that, so and we just talked about a few of those. John Hagee is a very strong futurist. Uh, Jack Van Empey, some of these guys, very strong futurists. They're going to read these prophecies and they're going to go, hey, that's all in the future. That hasn't happened and, and here's why. It may have happened 
Uh, there may have been some things that were like it, and they won't deny that. And, and by the way, I'm not throwing stones at these guys. I'm just saying this is what they believe. And they'll say, okay, that, that may have happened historically, but it was, it was just a moment in time. The actual fullness of that is, is about this other prophetic work, okay? And, and there is some room in there. Um, we'll, get, we'll get more to that. But, so for a futurist, everything will be accomplished in the future. A partial preterist believes part has been fulfilled in the past, part will be accomplished in the future. I'll just let the cat out of the bag. I would consider myself a partial preterist. I, I do think we have strong evidence of these things that have absolutely been fulfilled in the past, but then we've also got some, some really strong evidence that there's some things that haven't yet happened, and I feel like we'd have to really stretch to say, well, all this happened in the past, and we shouldn't be expecting anything to be happening in the future in regards to some of these prophetic words. But again, they're a mystery, and one thing I do know is this. Who knows when it's going to happen? The Father. Did he tell Jesus? He didn't even tell Jesus. I seriously doubt that he told Jack Van Impey. And I seriously doubt he told Joshua Revis. You see what I'm saying there? I mean, if Jesus didn't make the cut, I don't think John Hagee did either. And if Jesus said that there won't be signs of those things, but that it will caught you unaware, how are you caught unaware? Like if you're both in the field and you're both, it says two people are in the field, right? And they're working and they're picking grain, and one's taken, and the other one's left. What was the sign? There is no sign. It said it will be just like the days of Noah. And I think that's a key for us, because the kingdom of heaven isn't dependent upon us needing to know the specific times that are going on, perhaps. Perhaps the, the fact that we've seen, I mean, perhaps when Jesus said, no one knows, he meant, don't bother yourself with that. My kingdom is expanding. In fact, he said, go make disciples of all nations. Did he not? And then he said, therefore, I have all authority has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. And furthermore, he says, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And since that's been happening, we just started with some great news. Since that's been happening, there have been kingdom advances all throughout the earth even in nations that don't even acknowledge God yet the kingdom still continues to move and you know what happens when the kingdom shows up life gets better life gets better do you know who has a value for life kingdom people all right I gotta see if I can land this okay I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish with this point because I don't, I'm, I don't have time to do everything that I have prepared for you. But, but what I want to do is I want to just challenge the idea that it's just sort of an accepted fact that all of these prophetic words are somewhere in the future. And I specifically want to challenge this worldview of everything being purely futurist because the purely futurist worldview requires devastating things to happen in order for Jesus to come home. And, I, and I'm going to be just very bold to say that God doesn't have a whole lot to gain for things having to get worse in order for them to get better, but Satan does. Satan has a lot more to gain if Christians all believe that they need to be rooting for darkness to increase in order for the Bible to be true. Satan has a lot on the line getting believers to be pessimistic about their outlook on life and hunkering down and staying out of actually believing that a nation, that nations could become disciples of Jesus. And yet Jesus said, make disciples not of just 
a few people, but he said of all nations. So I believe that when we look around and we, and we hold a viewpoint of the world that requires that Christians, that the kingdom of heaven can't make disciples of nations because it somehow contradicts the prophetic words that mean everything has to get darker, then I think that that stands in the face of what Jesus said. I believe that it stops the momentum of believers that would dream for a nation and causes them to say yes and amen to death and abortion and, and, and wickedness and say, well, it's just signs of the times. I think it's a sign that we've missed, understood the, the commandments of Jesus Christ. And that we've allowed the mystery part of some of these pro prophetic words to be taught as a, as a worldview, an eschatological view that causes us to hunker down and wait rather than move forward. And the thing that I want you to know is that this idea of this, these times getting worse before they get better is a very young idea. And I'm going to give you the backdrop for that, and then we're going to have to land this plane on that. Origen was one of the church fathers. He was one of the first uh, Christian philosophers of, of his day that emerged. Amazing writings. Uh, some of his stuff, I, I will tell you, he had a few things that were a little wonky. In fact, you'll probably see some more quotes from Origen in this day and age because a lot of people like some of his philosophical things uh, where he landed in some funny places was that Satan would get saved. Obviously, that's not going to happen. That is totally extra biblical. I don't know where he came up with that nonsense. But if you want to read something awesome, read Origen against uh, Celsus. Fantastic. He wrote eight books. This guy is a genius defending the faith. Incredible reading. It is so good. At any rate, this is one of, the, uh, this is one of his quotes, but he says, it's evident, and this is in, this is in uh, somewhere between 185 and 254 AD, and you'll have to forgive me, because I didn't look up the exact year when he said this, so you get his lifespan instead. But it is evident that every form of worship will be destroyed except the religion of Christ, which will alone prevail. And indeed, it will one day triumph as its principles, now this is where it gets important, as its principles take possession of the minds of men more and more each, every day. You catch that? He's not saying in the great by and by when Christ comes back and rescues us all out the back door because darkness is so big and bad that the church can't possibly stand against it, that we don't have superior ideas or superior forms of government or superior love that actually brings the kingdom of heaven. But no, the darkness is so big and bad and scary that all the Christians run out the back door and Jesus goes, come with me, I'll rescue you because my death wasn't enough and the Holy Spirit which raised me from the dead, which you actually have in you, yeah, it wasn't enough either. I had to rescue because the devil's way bigger than you and the world's way more meaner than you, and so I, I admit it, we sort of, let's just burn the earth. I don't think that's the gospel that Jesus Christ preached to us, and yet I feel that we've been duped into believing these ideas, and when we pull them out and we talk about them like this, you go, booyah, I don't even believe that for a second, but when you think about the way that you're living, you go, but I act like I believe that. Oh my goodness, I think there's parts of this that have crept in and I've sort of accepted them as though they're normal because Kirk Cameron did it on the silver screen and I'm looking for a grasshopper with blonde hair. I think that we need to examine what we believe. Some of you are catching that if you read Revelation recently. I want to go a little further here. This is Jonathan Edwards. He says, in revival, when the Holy Spirit did set in, is as much as was done in a few days at ordinary times in a year or two, he's saying, God was on the move. Put this on a grander scale. He's already dreaming. This is during the Great Awakening. Put this on a grander scale, and the visible, say that, visible. 
kingdom of Satan shall be overthrown and the kingdom of Christ set up on the ruins of it everywhere throughout the whole habitable globe. This is, what the, this is during the Great Awakening. This is during the Great Awakening. This isn't that long ago. He wasn't saying, and, and a lot of good things will happen and people get saved, but then they're all going to fall away. This isn't the message that he was bringing. He was saying, I believe that the kingdom will continue to advance. You know, there's another scripture that says, and the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That doesn't sound like the church getting rescued out the back door while the big bad devil and his antichrist chums come out and scare us. That doesn't sound like making disciples of all nations, does it? Yes, it does. I just said that backwards. That sounds like making disciples of all nations, doesn't it? Confused myself. All right, I got another one for you. All unprejudiced persons may see with their eyes that he, God, is already renewing the face of the earth. And we have strong reason to hope that the work he hath begun, he will carry unto the day of the Lord Jesus, that he will never intermit, which means stop, this blessed work of his spirit until he has fulfilled all his promises, until he hath put a period to sin and misery, and infirmity and death and reestablished universal holiness and happiness and caused all the inhabitants of the earth to sing together hallelujah. It's John Wesley. That was in 1791. Well, at least. I ran out of time. Come on. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the men and women were hearing when they said, maybe we can have a nation that's set on a hill. Maybe we can make disciples of an entire nation. Yes, there's racism right now. Yes, women are being treated horribly right now. Yes, we're slaughtering the Native Americans right now. Yes, in the West, there's terrible things that are happening. But maybe we, if we will follow Christ, can change these things because Christ didn't say it was okay. And so therefore, we're believing that that darkness will stop. We're believing that the gospel of Jesus Christ can change minds and hearts. And as those minds are renewed day by day, even as Origen said, then the kingdom of heaven will be established. It says their darkness came, but the light overcame it. What's your eschatology? Here's where it shifted. So the people were moving. Things were happening. People believed that we could be great. I'm not saying it was all awesome and beautiful. There were many people who much in the same way, I shouldn't have brought that up yet, that much in the same way used the gospel to defend slavery are still, I'm sorry, used the scripture to defend slavery. There are those that would still use the scripture to defend pessimism and defeatism. And the, and, the, and, the, and the rise of the Antichrist and the rise of darkness rather than the establishment of the kingdom. If men could misunderstand scripture and for their own purposes or fears or misunderstandings enslave another man while saying that they preach the gospel of love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. If one could be confused and preach such foolishness, could we not be confused about an eschatological view that says it must get darker before it gets light? I'm just saying, is it possible? And so I just say, examine your hearts and examine the scripture afresh with a new understanding that this idea of defeatism of the church in order for Jesus to triumph is a new idea. And I dare say a foolish one. 
most leaders of the early church held to a victorious eschatology, of which I'm speaking. And they held to the idea that the church would continue to grow in unity and glory until we all matured and established more and more of the kingdom on earth, until finally Jesus returned. But during the 20th century, as we faced World War I, Christians in Europe began to embrace a more pessimistic outlook, and with the Great Depression and World War II, North America followed suit. Rather than seeing the kingdom of heaven as a little leaven that works through the whole loaf, and rather than seeing that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the water covers the seas, believers began to embrace a view of the earth falling into the hands of the enemy and darkness increasing on the earth until Jesus comes and rescues his people. See what happened? Signs of the times. But this letter of revelation is to a people where he says, you are in the midst of tribulation. I, John, who is in this tribulation with you, am saying, be encouraged. Because these things that I've seen in heaven have happened, are happening, and will happen. So be of good cheer. Did not Jesus say, "Be of, in this world you'll have tribulation. John said, I'm in it with you. Guys, in this world we have tribulation. But he's in it with us. And he said this, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he didn't stop and say, but however, it's completely impossible and you'll be defeated not to save you. No, he said, teaching them to do all things that I've commanded you. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a little yeast. And it ends up throughout the whole I think he says lump, actually. Lump. So this idea happened because of the fullness of, of seeing horrible things happening. World War I devastated people. They went, wait a minute, we thought we would be unopposed. Now there's a difference here. Guys, we're not unopposed. In fact, the writers said, and remember last week I talked to you about it, it says the, he said he's encouraging them because they were facing the same things that, that in the 19, or the, um, yes, that, that, that in the late, what did I just say, 19th century? Anyway, after World War I, etc., the disciples were facing the same things then when the apostles said to them, do not consider God's patience as though God were slack in coming, but his patience is salvation for the world. Remember that? So he's saying, don't expect me to come in here and rescue you. You're not actually being defeated. You're winning. You're winning. In Revelation, there were those, the souls, those who had given their lives, and they said, when will you come? And God said, not yet. Not until it's complete. And we know those that gave their lives as unto death, they have a special time with the Lord. Read about it in Revelation. There's a special reward for those who have given their lives. And it's greater than us. It, it's, well, I should say it's different. I don't know if he says it's greater, but it says, blessed are they. Blessed are they who laid down their lives. So it's worth it for them. They don't go, oh, man, I got my head cut off for Jesus, and I'm bummed. No, they're like, I got my head cut off for Jesus. Oh, dude, you should have done it. You should have got up in there on the front lines like, it's sweet. And the rest of us are going, man, I wish I would have. But you know what? I'm excited about my part, too. I'm excited that I didn't give up. I'm excited that I didn't misunderstand what Jesus was saying and start believing a gospel that makes us all a bunch of Heidi Frades. I'm going to end with this. Revelation 22. And then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the thing. Uh-oh. 
Am I back? Uh, which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, see that you don't do that, for I am your fellow servant. And of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is... That's an interesting word. I'm just saying it's to the seven churches, and he says the time is at hand. I think there's a lot of things we can learn, and I do believe there are some things in Revelation that are for the future. I want to be clear about that. But I think we had better dig deep to see which things have actually happened historically. At this time, he's in Revelation, John is speaking to a whole bunch of people who are under persecution to bow down to either the beast or the dragon, and it continues to interchange. Well, they were in the middle of serving they were under Rome. And Rome was saying, the Roman emperor was saying, I am God, and you will call me as such. And the Christians were saying, we will not. And he was saying, you will lose your head, or be sewed up in bags of skin and eaten by wild dogs, or thrown into the Colosseum. So they were facing very real things. Very real things. Little bit, little, just a tiny bit above being called like narrow-minded or a bigot. It's a, it's a tiny bit. That was supposed to be funny, but it wasn't. Okay. Just saying maybe this politically correct. You guys are mean hate speakers. Just show them your good works. Just smile and say, come here. Come here. He says this. Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So he ends with this. I'm coming quickly. And I'm reminded of the letter that we talked about last week where he says, remember, with him, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And it is not like he's being slack with his promises, but rather his patience is salvation for the world. Let's go spread the kingdom of heaven. Amen? All right.